I realized my mic wasn't on. <laughs> and I'm really starting it off well today. <clears throat> well, let's pray together before we dive into the scriptures. Father, would you just thank you so much for who you are? We just recognize that you are one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we just um, thank you for saving us, for bringing us into your kingdom. And so, Father, I just ask that you would help us as we just kind of do a little summary of where we've been so far in this book, that you would help us to be disciples, to be followers of you in this city of Fortuna, in this country of America. Help us to follow you, to have your values, your way of life. So do that by your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the dangers of being a Christian in American evangelicalism is that we can be prone to think of Christianity in the past tense. And here's what I mean. Those of us who are raised on things like sinners' prayers, altar calls, sign a card, declarations of the Christian faith, can forget that following Jesus isn't just a faith moment in the past that you point to your Christian birthday, but it's a life. It's a lifestyle of following Jesus. We're called to discipleship. In other words, we're to be learners of the words and ways of Jesus. A disciple, a learner of the words and ways of Jesus. And so, no, we are not saved by discipleship, but we are saved for discipleship. And so we need to remember that we should think of ourselves not only as believers in Jesus, but followers of Jesus. And so one of the things that Paul has been doing in his letter to Corinth is teaching the church community in that city how to follow Jesus in their city. He does it through encouraging them. He does it through rebuking them. He does it by modeling for them how to follow Jesus in a pagan and unbelieving society. And so we too can discover how to be a disciple of Jesus in our city of Fortuna, in our county of Humboldt, in our country of America. And we can discover this by listening to what Paul says to people in ancient Corinth. We can learn the words and the ways of the work of Jesus and that it does not come from inside of us. So we're not going to learn by looking inward. We're going to learn by looking outward to the authority of Scripture, to what God has said to us. We follow Christ. We don't follow self. And therefore, the training wheels of faith and faithfulness is hearing the Word of God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to the whole first five chapters of Corinth, of the first letter of Corinthians that we have been in. That's what we're going to do today. Paul's desire is that the church there would not be formed by Corinth. 
but that they would be formed by Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's desire for us, this isn't some word that I've got from the Holy Spirit, this is just the truth, the Holy Spirit inspired this text for us. So that we could live by the kingdom where Jesus is king, not by American values, but by the kingdom of Jesus. And so, we're going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read chunks, then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to hopefully give us ten P's. Ten P's. I don't know what it is with me and P's. Kate doesn't like peas. I like peas, especially with butter. But we're going to do 10 peas, and I'm going to try to contrast them with some things that we may believe in America, some things that we're being formed by. So, we're going to read those first three set of verses again. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the first point. In a country forming us by identity politics, preach to yourself your core identity in Christ. Okay, so one way we want to live, we want to be formed by the way of Jesus, preach to yourself the identity of who you are in Jesus Christ. Don't get formed by pitting all different various forms of identity right now that we see in our political world, in our life, in our education system. Don't get all hung up on that. There can be reasons at times for that to address particular situations, but we need to know That we are Christ's. That is our identity. And so Paul starts telling them, this is who you are. Look at that. Verse 2. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're sanctified. Remember who he's speaking to. Corinthians, you're sanctified. This is who you are. You've been set apart for Christ. You are in Him. Like the people of Israel called to be set apart from the other nations. You're a different community. You're sanctified in Christ. You're called to be saints. You are elect. Like Israel. The other nations were not elect. Israel was. The people of God have been called and chosen by God to be saints. That's who you are. So we're not looking to particular saints who might have done extraordinary things. We're not marking particular people. Every believer in this room... No matter what you think you are on the ranking of your spiritual development, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. And that is good news. So gospel identity creates gospel behavior. That's where it starts, and Paul knows that. That's why he starts by telling them, before he gets into all the this, that, and the other thing of the problems, he says, this is who you are. And this is how you should walk. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, he's no longer alive, in his book, Spiritual Depression, 
He says this, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, let's pause for a second, just kind of walking around feeling super depressed all the time. I'm a failure as a Christian, getting caught up in self-pity, caught up in various issues of the past. Maybe the Christian life didn't turn out to be what you thought it would be. And what he says is, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is, is this, that we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that the most of your unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He goes on, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And he goes on. So, preach to yourself. You're going to talk to yourself every day. You're going to wake up tomorrow and there's going to be a lot of self-talk happening. we got to preach to ourselves who we are in Christ and speak that truth. So, number one, in a country forming us by identity politics, preach to yourself your core identity in Christ. Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So. In a country forming us with outrage, practice gratitude. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Again, remember who he's talking to. How can he say that? I give thanks to my God always before you. Paul practices gratitude. He starts with gratefulness. And we should too. Our gratitude should be said out loud to people. Our homes should be places of gratitude. God help us. Our churches should be places of thankfulness. Not quiet, but loud. Even Paul could thank the mess of the church in Corinth and say, I always thank my God for you. So, even right now, Brad, thank you for all the work that you do here. You do things behind the scenes all the time. Finances, building, meeting organization, we are thankful for it. Thank you. We need to be a place that practices gratitude. That will be counterculture. Our culture is filled with outrage and anger. Every day, there's something new to be upset about. We should be thankful. And our diet (laughs) needs to be watchful of your intake of outrage. And we need to exhale gratitude. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no man may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, in a country forming us for division, pursue unity. Pursue unity. Verse 10, that you all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Unity is not optional. Unity is not an optional add-on for Christians. It's not something we should have way down the list of things that we should do. It's a command. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all clones, that we're all going to believe exactly the same thing. That's not what it means. But it does mean that the main thing is what should drive our emotions, our opinions of each other. And the main thing is the good news of Jesus. Again, our culture is going to get us hung up on all kinds of other things. But we need in our church and in the churches of Jesus Christ, to be pursuing unity. That unity is a big deal. The worldliness of of, um, fracture and fragmentation and division is not what we are called to be. We are called to be unified. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So in a country forming us for self-sufficiency, preach the message of the cross. Preach the message of the cross. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Everybody, all people, all kinds of people, all types of people are leveled before the cross. God is after the elimination of human boasting, the destruction of self 
sufficiency. The self-sufficient cannot embrace a crucified Savior. The self-sufficient cannot embrace a crucified Savior, but yet that is the good news, that we would empty ourselves and embrace the one who emptied himself to be our sufficiency. So Corinth was very self-sufficient. Anthony Thistleton, one commentator, said this, and this reminds me of America. Corinth, as we have noted, had everything that it needed. The Perrine fountains provided an almost inexhaustible water supply. Acro-Corinth could provide a citadel for defense if necessary. Trade between east and west and north and south was abundant and assured. Manufacturing and exports prospered. The Isthmian Games brought in more consumers than could readily be surprised, than could readily be supplied. The natural resources of clay, marl, and limestone were abundant. Employment of multiform variety was available. Trade and production flourished. It was a provincial center for rhetoric. It drew people from all parts of the Eastern Empire to admire its facilities and spectacles. And he goes on to say, It's no surprise that when they became Christians, many people of Corinth carried over attitudes of self-sufficiency and Corinthian pride. Many wanted and expected a Corinthian spirituality that we might describe in today's fashionable language as contextually redefined for Corinth. Paul has spoken of wisdom, knowledge, spirit, spiritual, free, and saved. All these terms, it seems, became redefined to match a Corinthian understanding and context. Hence, in several parts of the epistle, Paul redefines them again in accordance with the received apostolic gospel. They were self-sufficient. Why were they self-sufficient? Because they had everything. So then they tried to take the Bible, the gospel, and kind of code it with Corinthian self-sufficiency. We can do the same thing. We need to preach and believe the message of the cross. Chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, in a country of rising atheism and scientific reductionism, press into the Spirit. Press into the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 4. In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We live in a disenchanted world where the supernatural is, is struck from everything, especially in the West. And we are called and to call out to God for the, dare I say, enchantment of the Spirit. We need supernatural power. Not that just comes from standing up here and preaching. It comes through the vehicle of the Gospel, but the Spirit must blow upon it. He must enliven it. And so we live in a world that reduces everything to just a scientific explanation, to just raw material, chemicals in the brain, bodies, everything flattened. That is a false view of the world. And we need to be reminded, even in our churches, sometimes we can be so focused on text and exegesis and knowing the Bible. And if absolutely we must be, that's our calling. But we also must know we need the Holy Spirit to show up in a demonstration and power to bring actual real change. So we, to fight what we see in our country, we got to say, God, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you change us and bring real power and change areas in my life that need change? God, would you show up? Would you, would you heal people's bodies? God, would you show up? Would you save their souls? That people would turn from sin to Jesus Christ. And so, it's not just explanation, it's demonstration. So, press into the Spirit. Chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, 
he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So, in a country tyrannized by time and avoiding death, be present in all you have in Christ. Verse 3.21 For all things are yours. We as believers, are not ruled by time. We are not ruled by death. We are not ruled by the slippery present or the scary future of death. We are called to live in the freedom of Christ that is ours now. He's exhorting them, using that sweeping language You are Christ. Christ is God's. Time may slip. Death may come. Rulers are going to come and go. Christian leaders and pastors are going to come and go. You are Christ. Christ is God's. It's freeing to know that and to believe that. To be present in it now. Not to just wait for the future, but we can have that hope now. And we can look through all of those things with the fact that we are Christ. And Christ is God's. So, be present in Christ now because you are in Christ now. That's what he's saying. You've trusted the message. You've believed it. This is who you are. you got all that Christ has. I don't feel like it. That's true. You probably don't either. But the good news is that we are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so we don't have to be ruled by and fear the various tyrannies and rulers of this world because we are Christ. We can live in freedom. Chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So in a country formed by self-promotion, practice the cross that you preach. Practice the cross that you say you believe in. 4.16, he says, be imitators of me. And of course, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. What does Christ, Im- or what does Paul imitate? The cross of Christ. What's his way of life? Is seen through the lens of the cross. We are people of the cross. We should look like, in one sense, the cross. We crucify the values of the world that are still at war within us. We put them to death. And by the resurrection, we live by the Spirit. We want to be formed by these things. And so we need to practice the cross that we preach and say that we believe. Christ is our model. We should imitate Him by His grace and by His Spirit. Chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In a country 
filled with self-righteous judgment, pronounce judgment on those inside the church, not outside the church. Chapter 5, verse 3, I have already pronounced judgment. Judgment begins with the house of God. That's where judgment starts. Our culture loves to blame the other, the other outside group. So I have my identity. When somebody on the other side of the identity does something that I don't like, I blame them. I pronounce judgment upon them. We live in a world that is saturated with judgment and moralism and it's happening more and more. And the moralism happens on the right and the moralism happens on the left. And we pronounce judgment on the other. That is not our way of life. That is not what we do. Now, to be clear, there is a sense in which the gospel goes forth. All are called to repent. All are under judgment. So we do pronounce, hey, judgment's coming. Repent and trust Jesus. But the, the focus for the church must start with inside and not just be railing against everything that's happening outside. One, it's annoying. And two, it just looks really bad about who Jesus Christ is. And who we are to be as his people. We should be more, in a sense, strict with ourselves than those on the outside. So, we need to be careful with that. We must start within. We must beware of practicing our righteousness before other people and publicly displaying all of our great goodness and how bad those on the outside are. And remind ourselves, hey... The issues that we have in our church, we should deal with. We should deal with. Verses 6 through 13. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In a country quick to speak, purge revilers from the church. And cleanse reviling from your life. Note that Paul, in that little section, though the context is mainly about sexual immorality, Paul is not just concerned with what's happening with the sexual organs of the people in the church. He's he's concerned with another organ, the tongue. And he's talked about the tongue A ton in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Reviling. 
A lifestyle of reviling deserves excommunication. How many times have we ever heard of a church removing somebody or a pastor falling or something like that because of reviling, because of a mouth that is out of control? What is it? First of all, what is it? That's not a word we usually throw around a lot. Hey, quit reviling me. We don't, we don't usually use that word. NIV says slanderer. The Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, verbally abusive. The Christian is not to be verbally abusive. It is an offense to God. To be one who would be after the destruction of people's reputations, of lashing out at people. And some of this technically can get back to the issue of bearing false witness. We we talked about that before, of how a lot of these things come up in Deuteronomy. And one of the things in Deuteronomy is, it's not just one witness, there's got to be a few witnesses. A false witness is a big deal sin. We do not look to lie about people or be aimed to speak of all of the time of all of their issues to destroy their reputations. And what is social networking practically built on? Very similar things. I was thinking about it in terms of presidencies. We've had leaders who have been sexually immoral in our culture and we have reaped the whirlwind. We have had presidents who have used their tongues in name-calling and we have reaped the whirlwind of our mouths and how it can catch things on the fire of hell with this. Reviling is a serious sin. Our culture of reviling should not be inside of the church. Yes, we should speak the truth. But the way in which we speak it matters greatly. We are not to be destroyers of other people's reputations. We are not to be people who use our tongues to either bear false witness or to tear down, to name call, to be verbally abusive. It is evil. It is wicked. It is unrighteous. We are to purge, to clean out reviling in our churches. And we must be careful because we are filled with that in our culture. Our homes, we should remove it from our homes. We should be careful the way we speak to each other. Our friendships, we should be careful the way we speak about each other. Our enemies, we should be careful about the way we speak about them. Our workplaces, we should be careful the conversations that we engage in. We should clean out the leaven of reviling, of slander, of verbal abuse and purge it from us. Ray Ortland, he's a pastor, he wrote this on reviling. I was struck by that word revilers in my personal Bible reading this morning. It means those who speak in an insulting manner. The verbal form means to assail with contemptuous language, to utter bitter complaint or denunciation. Jesus said, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5.22. Matthew 12.36. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. He goes on to say, it is so easy to think my words are no big deal. I'm not doing anything bad. In fact, I'm justified in what I'm unleashing out of my mouth. Look what they did. Interesting, isn't it, how we excuse our own unguarded words even as we wince in pain at the words of others. 
There will be no shouting matches in heaven, no put downs, no reviling, because there will be no revilers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. He is a fountain of overflowing sweetness. What a lovely environment heaven must be. Have our mouths spoken reviling words we need to take back now while we have the chance. Are we ready for heaven? Is a little whisper of heaven what people experience through the words coming out of our mouths? Jesus, help us. Guard our tongues. So I'm going to cheat and jump forward for number 10. And that's because it's about communion. And I was thinking about it in, and communion comes up in chapter 11. And I was thinking about it in terms of the Super Bowl. In a country that annually celebrates the values and ritual of the Super Bowl, we partake weekly in communion. And I was thinking about what do they do with the Super Bowl? They sing the national anthem, kind of confess, in a sense, the creed of the national anthem. The sexy pop star also sings. The military power flies over the stadium. There's competition between rivals, each side lining on their own teams. People cheering loudly for their side. And we do that every year. And what do we do in our homes? Oftentimes, and of course, not everybody, but lots of people, you gather together. You have a gathering to watch and celebrate the Super Bowl. You eat. You get chips and dip and all kinds of fun foods. And you eat together and celebrate this ritual to kind of remind yourself of who we are. Hey, we're people. We're together. We're doing community. We're going to sing. We're going to celebrate. We're going to watch. We're going to engage in competition. And I like the Super Bowl. I'm a big sports fan. But even from that, you can kind of see these rituals of the values of the world, of the American empire. And we are the people of the kingdom under the king. And so what do we do? We come together. We sing. We pray. We listen. And we feast. We celebrate the good news of what Jesus did for us. But the king that came low, the king that took the cross, the king that took on a body, the God-man, shedding his blood, breaking his body for us. And so we do this to remember who we are and to form us into that kind of a person. It's not just a symbol that there is something that happens in communion. A fellowship, a koinonia with Christ by faith. And so that's what we do every week. Trust Christ. Proclaim Christ. Say, I need more of this in my life, in my ways, in my words. And I'm not saved by what I do. I'm not saved by these practices. I'm not saved by discipleship. I'm saved by Jesus. And then I walk in that kind of life. Receive His forgiveness. Receive His power. So that's what we're going to do right now.
of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hope, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. Holy is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, His power is displayed. Tis I hold my shepherd while He The night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been. For Jesus fled and suffered for my pardon, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and never is my peace. For the chains are released. I can sing. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for He has said that He will bring me home. And day by day, I know He will renew me, until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hope, my hope is only Jesus. The race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.
So what are the things that Jesus said when he was crucified? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he was reviled, he blessed. And so we celebrate what he has done for us by reminding ourselves of his work. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Before I spoke a word You were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't hurt it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. Overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I couldn't hurt it, and I don't deserve it. 
Come back for our potluck here at 12 o'clock. 